The ocean is wonderful and beautiful and incredible. It was incredibly beautiful to spend two hours descending from the top of the ocean down to the bottom of the ocean floor and just watching the light change from deep blue to turquoise blue to every different shade of blue you can imagine into total black darkness. And then to have the lights turn on and to see the bottom of the ocean floor. I saw a vampire squid, which is a squid with red on it. So it looks like it's covered in blood and phytoplankton that lit up. It was incredible and beautiful. And then I had to be reminded, which always ends up being the thing that comes at the end of my job is I'm down there and I'm seeing all this incredible beauty and immense and important. And then I remind myself that I'm there to look at a horrible oil spill. And then I see all the oil on the bottom. This is the Indy Kids Climate Crisis Podcast, where student reporters interview people about the climate crisis. We talk to activists, organizers, scientists, and reporters about how climate change has affected them and us. I'm Lucas. I'm in ninth grade, and I'm talking to you from Spain. And uh, this is actually my first time doing interviews with Indy Kids, and I'm really excited to do it. I'm interested in climate change because I really want to find out ways to help create a greener planet because I know how many issues we're facing nowadays with climate change, global warming, all this pollution, and I want to help fix it. Hi, my name is Charlotte Ozaria, and I'm in the fourth grade, and I'm a student for Indie Kids, and I am interviewing you from New York City. Climate change is a really important thing for me because I can learn stuff, new stuff about it. And at, at the end of the day, you, you know something that you never knew before. And I'm Antonia Yuhas, and I'm joining you from New Orleans, Louisiana. And I am older than in the ninth grade or the fourth grade. I am a teacher at Tulane University uh, in New Orleans, and I'm a working investigative journalist, and I'm an independent um, journalist, which means that I work for a variety of different outlets, most often for Rolling Stone, National Geographic, Newsweek, but I've also written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, lots of different magazines and newspapers, primarily magazines. And I focus on energy and climate, looking at the intersection in particular of the impact of fossil fuels on the climate crisis and social movements that organize in response to fossil fuels and to confront the climate crisis. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So like in your book, um, Bush Agenda, they specifically tell us in the book that like you discover something from the U.S. I want to know what what you discovered from the U.S. Wow. Okay. Going back to my first book, (laughs) 2006. Good research, Charlotte. All right. That's excellent. So my first book, The Bush Agenda, was about the influence of different uh, corporate actors on the the Bush administration. And one of those actors, one of those sectors was the fossil fuel industry. And I looked at the influence that it exerted within and on the president of the United States and the White House and the entire policymaking apparatus of that administration and then how that influenced decisions around the Iraq war and around climate policy. And one fun fact that I found was that there's only two United States presidents that came directly out of the fossil fuel industry, George Bush and his father, George H.W. Bush. 
that was an interesting factoid. Interesting. How do you think, like with climate change, do you think we can be a possible, like a greener world or a wise one? Absolutely. You know, answering this from a journalist perspective, 2020 was the year with the most climate coverage globally than any other year. And in the United States, among newspaper coverage, it was the second highest year ever, with the highest year being 2010, and then there being a huge drop-off in coverage, and then it going back up again. And across sectors, it's the highest year in media coverage in the United States as well. And I think that is, the reason for that is because there is enormous demand from the public to learn about and learn more and investigate the climate crisis. There is more money going in to supply the coverage, which is really important. And there is more interest among journalists to cover the crisis. And all of that is a manifestation of deep concern, I think, that people and the public want to do more. And the coverage is also increasingly focused on what's called solutions journalism, which is how do you not just cover a topic and investigate it, but provide solutions to the problem. And a lot of climate journalism is, is increasingly moving into that solutions journalism space where you provide or at least demonstrate that there are solutions or people working on solutions to the problem that you've laid out. And I think all of that is a reflection of the fact that I definitely believe that we've had the solutions to the climate crisis for decades. We haven't had the political will to implement them. I don't think that it's a technological problem. I don't think it's a financial problem. I don't think it's a what to do problem. It's a political will to make the changes to confront the crisis. And the more that we have great journalists investigating the blockage, what, why, what's blocking the political will, and then demonstrating the alternatives and the people who are working towards them, I think that the better path will, will be on. With the amazing things you do in life, do you like hope to inspire people? like to follow up and do it? I try and inspire readers through my writing to most importantly feel informed and empowered, um, informed by the information and empowered to be participants in the decisions that affect all of our lives. They can have a role, they can be a participant in the decisions that influence their lives. And there's a variety of ways to have those roles and a variety of people doing all sorts of interesting things or corrupt things or things that need to be addressed in the world. And there's all sorts of ways to either hold those who are bad actors accountable and, and create paths to change. I also try and inspire other journalists. Why have you chosen women of color as a priority in your work? So there's two reasons. One is it really is and has been a natural outgrowth of what I cover that people who have been most impacted by leading the answers to the most powerful actors within the communities that I've been covering have tended to be women and women of color. Women are disproportionately impacted and harmed by the fossil fuel crisis and have thus, I think, taken leadership positions in response to it as a result. Women and children, for example, are 14 times more likely to die in a climate disaster than any other population. Women are also, in most areas of the world, primarily those who are in charge of agriculture and providing, and fisheries and providing food for the family, but also often food for the community and also on a, even on a commercial scale. 
And the provision and access to food and fisheries is one of the most directly harmed and impacted areas from the climate crisis, whether it's floods or droughts or fires or storms, but also from the oil sector. So when you have oil spills, uh, that often has very strong impacts on agriculture and fisheries, um, whether that's in Nigeria or Louisiana. And one of the clearest impacts of living near fossil fuel operations is harms to women's reproductive health and uh, the well-being of the health of children. So women have also then often led in response to the impacts um, on their own reproductive health of living near fossil fuel operations, but then also living in fence line communities and the impacts of the air pollution, the water pollution go beyond maternal and child health impacts, but um, impact health overall. Communities of color are, are disproportionately harmed, and nations of color are disproportionately harmed by fossil fuels in the climate crisis and are often referred to as environmental justice or climate justice communities. I've also found, however, the course of my career, that women and women of color, and women of color in particular, have been left out of coverage and have been not represented in the media themselves, not, not only as subjects of the media, but also as journalists, as editors, et cetera. And so it was a natural outgrowth in my reporting to focus on women and women of color, but it was also increasingly an intentional focus to address those inequities, uh, the disproportionately lack of representation uh, and participation. There's a variety of way of defining the term expert and a lot of different forms of expertise. And one clear form of expertise is being the person or the people who have experienced the issue that you're writing about the most, are the most directly um, uh, impacted by it, have had to address it for the longest, have the most experience with the issue. And that direct expertise is also a type of expertise that I really try to highlight in my reporting. Have you ever like felt like, like you experienced climate change personally? I have increasingly been experiencing in my life, like most people, um, increasingly worse experiences with climate change. And I think the first was when I lived through the series of the fires getting worse and worse and worse in Northern California when I lived in San Francisco. And there was a, a day, and I can't remember the year, a few years ago, when we had the worst air quality anywhere in the world because of the fires that were raging in the forests in Northern California. And the fire season now in California sort of never ends because it's so dry because of the drought from global warming. And the it just takes so little to spark a fire. And once a fire sparks, there's so much dry material there that it moves farther and faster than it ever had before. And now there's more and more and more fires. And that smoke was horrible. And I thought, I thought that that was terrible. It's the first time I ever wore an N95 mask was to protect myself from that smoke. And we were instructed to do that living in San Francisco. And that was years ago. But then I moved here to New Orleans and just this last year, I lived through Hurricane Ida, and that was terrifying. It was really the worst climate disaster I've been through, and it was not something I ever want to have to do again if I don't have to. It's very scary. The worst part was the lack of electricity afterwards, and that was because of our city's reliance on fossil fuels. 
So I wrote a story for National Geographic about the electricity and why the electricity failed. And then I wrote a story, and you know, so the first thing I did to try and deal with the crisis was to try and report on it, right? It made me feel like I was doing something I could do to help. So I wrote that story about the electricity, and I wrote about communities across the Gulf Coast that are trying to shift away from big centralized forms of fossil fuel for energy to local renewable energy models that are safer in storms and more reliant. And then I went and reported on communities in uh, this area that's really inundated with fossil fuels that's known as Cancer Alley in Louisiana because the residents there, primarily Black, low-income residents, suffer from disproportionate rates of cancer. And I interviewed a woman whose name is Sharon Levine, who's a local organizer there, a Black woman organizer there, and wrote about the impacts on her personally of the storm, her community, and then what she's trying to do to replace again, the fossil fuel industry with renewable energy to try and not have future storms and then reduce the impacts of what happens when those storms hit. Because when the storm hit, those fossil fuel companies like refineries and plants didn't have electricity. And so they released tons of pollution when they also lost their electricity. And then the communities also have to deal with that pollution. So I wrote about that for Rolling Stone. and. It's how I help deal with my own, I think, stress and, and worry and difficulties with that climate crisis was by reporting on the way that other people were trying to make it, trying to, to stop those crises from happening in the future and try and address the problems that came up um, in the present. That's really sad. Yeah, it is. But the good part is that there's people working really hard to, to try and fix it <laughs> and make it better. Of course, every career comes with its hardships. What are some of the biggest challenges you've come across? I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of really interesting but difficult journalism. I have covered the role of oil and natural gas in the war in Afghanistan and traveled across northern Afghanistan just by myself and with my guide and you know, definitely faced a lot of really difficult situations as a result of that. Probably the most life-threatening situations I've been in were, were, were those. I had the opportunity to travel across the Ecuadorian Amazon and report on the role of oil, the attempts to drill for oil in the Yasuni Wildlife Reserve, which is one of the most important natural resource areas in the world, but also home to one of the last indigenous untouched communities in Ecuador. And had to be quite concerned about being followed by police there. I had the opportunity to travel in a Alvin submersible, which is a submarine that went down to the bottom of the ocean to the site of the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill on the bottom of the ocean, as close to the disaster site as anyone had gotten. And there were problems with the submersible, and that was really scary. Actually, probably that was pretty life-threatening as well. But it was certainly scary. And I had the opportunity to do two dives, but I only did one because that was I was scared enough by the first one to not do the second one. I think one of the hardest things is privacy and privacy concerns, particularly the more of a technological era we go into, the more as a journalist and an investigative journalist who works on this areas that I work on, trying to find the right balance between being concerned about my privacy, my personal privacy, and also needing to be a person who engages in the world. That, that's an increasingly difficult trade-off, I think, for a lot of journalists, uh, how to balance those two issues. And then making a living in a world where 
people don't believe that they have to pay for content is really hard. So making a living is going to is a challenge and it's a really good one to go in with your eyes open as young journalists and be demanding of everyone around you that they pay journalists to do their work <laughs> and pay them well and protect them. Being a journalist and like doing what you do is definitely a double-edged sword because you get to see all these amazing places, but then you have to turn around and see what's ruining that amazing place. Yeah, there's a lot of that. That was a lot of my experience in covering the BP oil spill. And this was the largest offshore drilling oil spill in world history that happened in April 2010 off the coast of Louisiana, where I live. So just 50 miles off the coast in the ocean. I would go to these beautiful beaches in Florida and Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama see this beautiful ocean and beautiful beach and be looking at this beautiful view. And then I'd look down and the beach was covered with oil. And I, again, remind myself, what I'm here to do is cover this horrible oil spill. And that's what I'm doing here. But at the same time, I am constantly inspired. And the reason why I keep doing my job is everywhere I go, I meet incredible people who are doing incredible things day in and day out in response to these problems that I'm identifying and bad things that I'm seeing, I, I just drop in and see a bad thing and then go home, right? But they live by the bad thing every day, right? It's their beach, it's their home, it's their, you know, community. And they struggle every day. And if they're able to do it every day, you know, I can withstand it for a short period of time, but also it inspires me and I hope inspires readers and I also meet incredible other journalists and work with incredible other journalists who I learn from and are inspired by, who are doing incredible work and are my guides in my work. When I went to Afghanistan, another woman journalist had taken a similar trek that I was taking across northern Afghanistan. And I reached out to her and asked her for her help. And she gave me so much advice and so much help that it really made it so that I could feel safe doing that trip. And that was all because of her. And so uh, while there are things that are scary and difficult, you're going to meet incredible people, work with incredible people, and be inspired by the people that you're reporting on and about, and hopefully, you know, with providing them also with useful work as a result of your reporting that make it all worth it. What, if anything, gives you hope? I really do get hope from the people that I report on who are constantly coming up with solutions and working on the solutions and learning about the solution. I think this story that I wrote for National Geographic was one of the ones that gave me the most hope. And it was literally in the middle of this hurricane. And it was my first time, like I said, I was terrified the whole time. Fortunately, surrounded by people who had, had lived through other hurricanes, so they knew more than I did. But I was terrified the whole time. And um, it was so inspiring and gave me so much hope to report on people who were saying, look, we've been thinking about these hurricanes for a really long time, and we know what to do. First, if we create less fossil fuels, then there'll be less global warming, and then there'll be less worsening of the climate. It's really easy. And then instead of relying on fossil fuels, if you have a local source of solar power that's right next to you, even like solar panels on your roof, protect your roof in a storm. The houses that had solar panels on their roofs didn't lose their, didn't lose their roofs. Their roofs were protected. And they had power because the power was right there instead of getting cut off because it was far away trying to come from a fossil fuel plant, a natural gas plant. And they said, if everywhere just has these things that are called microgrids, where the energy is right next to you and from renewable energy, 
you'll have electricity, there'll be less storms. And we're working on that. And I was like, wow, this is great. This makes me feel so good. <laughs> and I was inspired. So that gave me hope. And that's just, you know, one example of the people that I report on and the work that they do that really inspires me. What are some ways that everyday people, like the people listening to this, could help with this widespread crisis? If you are someone who's concerned about these issues, one way to address them is to be a, a consumer of media like mine and then follow up on what's in there. Are these groups that you might want to be a part of, that you could emulate where you live, that you could support where they're operating? Does it give you new ideas for what you could be doing in your community or an issue that seems similar? Are there communities here that are addressing it near you? If they're not, could you start the organization that's doing it? Is someone organizing in your school around this issue? If they're not, maybe you could do that. If there's organizing at a, a school that's like yours, maybe you can emulate it. And for me, there's hopefully a lot of lessons in the journalism, not only in terms of the, the issues and the topics and the responses, but tools for how you can think about problems related to fossil fuels in the climate crisis and also solutions. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Thank you. We would like to thank our mentor, Joe, for helping us make this podcast episode. This podcast was produced by Indie Kids, a nonprofit 501c3 organization that creates social justice news for kids by kids. In addition to this podcast, Indie Kids has a newspaper. Go to our website at www.indiekids.org to read the latest issue or to sign up for one of our writing or podcasting workshops. We're able to do this work and provide our student scholarships thanks to grants, workshop tuition, and individual donors. If you're able, make a tax-deductible donation to Indie Kids today. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Indie Kids News. See you next time.